Dr. Caleb Simmons specializes in religion in South Asia, especially Hinduism. His research specialties span religion and state formation in medieval and colonial India to contemporary transnational aspects of Hinduism. His book, Devotional Sovereignty, Kinship and Religion in India, examines how the late early colonial court of Mysore re-envisioned notions of kingship, territory, and religion, especially its articulations through devotion. He teaches courses on Hinduism, Indian religions, and method and theory of religious studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Simmons has also published several other books and papers and is an expert on Mysore, its history and culture. Welcome to the Expert Hour, Dr. Simmons. It's great to have your podcast for us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here with you. So let's get to it right away. I have a few questions, which I'm going to shoot at you one by one, and we can go from there. Let's begin this discussion, this very interesting concept that is in the title of the book. What do you mean by devotional sovereignty? Thank you for that question. It's one that I, I receive quite a bit because for many people, the two terms, devotional and sovereignty, are not natural allies uh, in many people's minds. But what I found as I was researching this book, I actually I began thinking about it um, for my, my dissertation work when I was in a, a PhD program. Mm. And I had come to Mysore and was affiliated with the Department of History at the University of Mysore. But I was really interested in Chamundeshwari, uh, the history of the, the temple. And the more that I learned about the temple, the more that inscriptions, uh, donative gifts, um, really linked the, the royal family with the goddess. Mm. And I started exploring this more and more. And my research started then to gravitate more and more toward the the woodier royal family, mm. and as I as I did this, I started to see patterns that were emerging from pre modernity into even even contemporary Mysore that linked concepts of kingship and sovereignty to devotionalism to bhakti. And as I d- continued to, to dive into this a little bit, I also started to see some references at uh, Nanjandeshwar, at the Tipu Sultan. So I expanded it beyond just the Woodiers, Chamundeshwari, and then with along with that also Melkote, Nanjangudu, uh, and then eventually started also looking at forms of devotion for Tipu Sultan. So what emerged was this picture of the question of sovereignty. What is sovereignty? And particularly the transition and the conception of sovereignty and kingship from pre-modern India through early modernity, and then particularly at the time that I'm interested, that early colonial period mm-hmm. where both Tipu Sultan and Krishnaraja Wadiyar III, or Mumadi Krishnaraja, uh, had to redefine what kingship meant in this new global, international, cultural encounter. And what I found was that at times of turmoil where the question of, well, what is sovereignty for an Indian king? Uh, at that moment, the rhetoric, uh, the articulations of sovereignty, whether it's in literature and in inscriptions and in paintings and sculpture, tended to highlight the king's devotion, mm-hmm. uh, whether this was to Tipu Sultan with the Shingeri Guru or Krishnaraja Wadiyar III with Chamundeshwari, that rhetoric was heightened. 
And so what I eventually argue in the book is that through this period, sovereignty was uh, articulated through forms of devotionalism, and then that led to the name devotional sovereignty. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) So uh, coming to my uh, next question, kings using devotionalism and religion to define and reinforce their kingship is fascinating. In the book, uh, you take one kingdom, which is Mysore, but you uh, write about two rulers, Tipu Sultan, who is a Muslim, and uh, Momadi Wadayar III, uh, Krishnaraja Wadayar III, uh, his Hindu successor. Did their devotional strategies actually match? This is a, another fantastic question and one that is extremely complex. Um, <laughs> because, And you're right to point out this question because in most people's minds, including mine when I began this, uh, they're diametrically opposed characters right. uh, or kings that you have, you know, the, the portraits that we get through through popular culture and through most historical writing was Tipu Sultan, uh, who was a warrior and a Muslim and, you know, fought against British colonialism. And then you have Mumadi Krishnaraja, who, you know, most people think of him kind of as a, you know, he was installed by the British. He didn't have administrative power for most of his rule and that he is sort of seen as a a weaker king and a Hindu. So you have everything about them at first glance seems diametrically opposed. Yes. And the reason why I wanted to put these two kings in conversation is because as I looked at the full span of of courtly productions from Krishna Raja Woody or the third I got a very different picture of him of course he was working within the confines of the loss of administrative power and military power but the ways that he articulates his own kingship especially through sculpture and through painting mm-hmm. these these courtly forms that may not be that intelligible to the British administrators. Mm -hmm. I actually saw this very strong king who also was actively working to resist colonialism. And then, of course, once you start thinking of him that way, it's natural then to look back to Tipu Sultan and say, like, well, where are the convergences between these two kings? Mm -hmm. And as I dove deeper, I found that if you look at their the places that they um, donate to Brahmins, uh, Mm -hmm. donate to temples, donate to muttas they're they're actually donating a lot of the same things to a lot of the same institutions um yeah so it, it really is really intriguing to think that you know there's some of these patterns and then mm-hmm. one thing that wasn't necessarily brought forth in the book as as much but i've written a few other articles is the things that they were doing if you look back in pre-modernity going all the way back to the uh, western gangas of talakadu they're doing the same sort of things and that there's a, a direct sort of line that leads all the way up to Muhammad Krishnaraja, which includes Tipu Sultan, where Tipu Sultan does additional things because he is Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they they both focus on lineages, their connection to important gurus, important mm-hmm. religious leaders, religious professionals. And mm-hmm. so there's actually the way that they go about constructing devotionalism and how that's connected to uh, divine authority and sovereignty are, uh, in my mind at least, very similar in their functionality. So just taking off from this uh, point which you've just made, with relevance to Tipu Sultan, we uh, usually think of him as a warrior, a conqueror, but his correspondence with Shringeri tells us or you know, throws a new dimension on a facet of his kingship as well as his uh, you know, political prowess. 
So uh, can you expand a little more on uh, Tipu's relationship with the Sringeri Mata? Yes, it's one of these very intriguing relationships that scholars, you know, since uh, as far back as as I've I've read, have been intrigued by Tipu Sultan's relationship with the guru of of Shringeri. And, um, you know, there has been a lot of good work done by Kannada historians of collecting these, transcribing them, printing them in, in modern Kannada, uh, mm-hmm. particularly uh, Shastri in his collection that is you know, printed by uh, the Shringeri Mata itself. People have been aware of it, but I think people struggle with what exactly to make of it. Right. Um, there's been questions about the historicity of these uh, these kandatas, these uh, how to describe them. They're almost like ledgers that they're that they were uh, kept on. But you know the question of historicity of whether these were created, they were written by Tipu Sultan. Um, to me, that question is uh, important, but one that is ultimately very hard to know. So instead, what I focused on is you know how this would function, the things that are contained in the letters how they are connecting to pre-modern forms of kingship and how it's it shows Tipu Sultan as a as a Muslim, uh, how he's engaged in forms of Hindu sovereignty. And why I say that is because this connection between the Shingeri guru uh, and rulers uh, was really instituted by the founders of the Vijayanagara kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, where they... Uh, patronized the Shingeri Guru. They built the the Mutta, uh, and so the the forms of authorization between that religious professional, the the head of the Mutta, and the king were established in that context. And many of the rituals that are discussed in these uh, kardatas from Shingeri are very much in line with the rituals that were taking place at the foundation of the Vijayanagara kingdom. So it seems as though, at least in, in my opinion, that what Tipu Sultan is doing through these letters is he's placing himself in a, a ritual lineage that's not necessarily connected with, you know, any of the, the possible kings from Muslim kingdoms in the in the Deccan Sultanate or over in Hyderabad, but instead he's, you know, engaged in forms of ritual kingship that are directly derived from the Vijayanagara Empire. So in, in layman speak, may we <laughs> confer from what you have just said that Tipu Sultan actually maintained this relationship with the Shringeri Mata as a form of political tradition? Yeah, I think you could say that. And I I, I would push that even a little bit farther. And I'm, I'm open to, to critique on this. But I think then the, if, as we read through forms of sovereignty in in South India, especially in the in the Deccan and mm-hmm. uh, the Mysore, uh, former Mysore kingdom, that it was very important from one dynasty to the next that whichever king came into power or emperor would engage in a certain rituals to be able to ensure that there is political authority passed from one dynasty to the next. And this okay. authorization is actually coming from from the divine. And this Shringeri guru was like the power broker, the authorizer of the king. So to get uh, the Shringeri guru to authorize his kingship does something that's, you know, thinking about kingship in more metaphysical terms, Mm. that it's not necessarily about the power of the sword, but it's uh, a divinely appointed office. And so with the Shringeri guru being able to confer this power upon uh, Tipu Sultan, it not only connects him to lineages of Muslim kingship, but it also connects him to what we might think of as as regional Hindu kingship. 
mm. uh, where he now is is the king over all of the subjects, not just his his Muslim subjects. Right. And so the, the reason why I, I say this is because I'll give you an example. So with Hakka and Bukka, the the, the founders of the Vijayanagara kingdom, yeah, yeah. Uh, when they start the the relationship with the Shingari Guru. Uh, they send, they start the construction, but they particularly send a linga that's going, supposed to be installed within the uh, within the Shadow Devi Temple. What we find in some of the letters of Tipu Sultan is he also sends a linga and instructs them to install it beside that Vijayanagara uh, linga and perform the same rituals that had been performed in the past. So it's through this process of of ritual mimesis or you know, almost in lame terms, like a copycat syndrome to where he says, uh-huh. do exactly what you did for them because I'm the new uh, emperor. And, you know, even you could say like, I am in the mold of the Vijayanagara emperors. That's actually a very simplified example, you know, which many of our listeners who may not be so clued into history will, you know, understand very clearly. So thank you for that. Coming to Krishnaraja Vadayar III, his removal by the British in the early 1830s is an important moment. Do you think he had to recraft his identity as a king through religion, um, gift giving and cultural patronage essentially to survive? Or was that the only area available to him given that the British had seized power, leaving him with no other option? That's another fantastic question. I go back and forth on this, but I know that a lot of people, historians in particular, when they talk about this period for uh, Krishna Raja III, they think of it as really a time of loss of power and trying of to grapple for any little bit of um, sovereignty that he can achieve. And in some ways, I, I believe that's true. But I actually think that he and his court were much more wise than that. They were much more theoretically oriented. Mm-hmm. So I think that they started to turn to a more theoretical discussion of what kingship is and where authority comes from. And I think what happens is some pretty interesting things is they they start to think about their lineage more. They start to think about what Indian kingship is. And they focus primarily on the, in my mind, in the concept that Indian kingship is authorized by the the supreme lord the supreme deity in the case of the the warrior since they were vaishnava uh, it would be mahavishnu so you see him inserted into the lineages in new ways and so by thinking about this as the foundation of all kingship really in my mind what he's what they start to do is start working from a theoretical standpoint and say this, and start undermining British authority from the from the very beginning. So basically, what they wind up doing is, even though the British have administrative power and they have military power, Mumadi Krishnaraja is articulating a very subtle but very brilliant strategy of who can actually be an Indian king, the people who are authorized by the divine. So it's undercutting the the on a very base theoretical level and. While in my book, I know it gets very dense about this process, uh, in the, the last chapter, Mapping Sovereignty, I make the argument this actually is preparing the way for a concept of united India politically, where the individual kings that ruled over kingdoms um, actually, through this rhetoric of sort of Hindu kingship authorized by a Hindu deity, uh, starts to pave the way for a theory that will bridge all of these small uh, kingdoms into one nation. And I think it's, you know, thanks to kind of research that scholars such as you, uh, more close to home, Manu, 
are putting out, it's actually driving uh, people now to question or to, you know, delve a little deeper into all these hidden layers that you so, you know, clearly have pulled up about ruler like Krishna Rajavadeya III. Like you say, our history books, you know, tell us a different story because they're always looking at it from one dimension. But it's great to have these kind of dialogues and, you know, get people thinking about new things these days. One example that I want to give, because I find it uh, wonderful. Again, most people think of, of Krishna Raja as this, as this very weak, almost like princely puppet for the, mm-hmm. for the British resident. Whenever you're in the, the larger uh, Mysore Palace fort, mm-hmm. uh, if you go to the um, Prasna Krishna Swami uh, temple, Mm-hmm. And you go in there and there's all these murals. And if you go, um, they're from the Bhagavata Purana. And you can go and you can see Krishna killing all of these demons. If you get to the scene of Kamsa, mm-hmm. I think it's actually a very telling scene. Because, of course, one of the arguments that I make is that Krishna uh, and Krishna Raja are you know, sort of mirrors of one another in a lot of the literature that's produced out of uh, Mamadi Krishna Raja's court. But when you get to the scene of Kamsa, Kamsa is actually on the throne inside of what looks like the old wooden Mysore palace, the mm-hmm. one that eventually burned down. So it's not the one that's there today. And you, you see that image and Kamsa's on the throne. And if you look at the guards, they're actually the guards. So Kamsa's bodyguards are actually dressed in British uh, military attire. <laughs> so and then you have Krishna coming up and killing. So one way that I've read that image is it's actually him showing us the people who are are willing to read these murals is that his strategy all along was to overthrow the British who who were there uh, administering the the kingdom. And there's these subtle allusions all over that show us that he wasn't just sitting back and taking this, but he was actively working to dethrone the British resident and eventually commissioner. That is amazing to know. And unless, you know, someone like you points out these little aspects, I think most of us who visit the palace or just pass through are only gawking at what is most obvious to the eye, but never actually looking for all these little telling signs that have been left behind for us to, you know, look at and learn more from. I, I was lucky to 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 live in Mysore for several years and to go to between the the palace temples and the Chamundeshwari temple. So I think a lot of it is just, you know, having having time as a researcher to go there back every day, talk to the to the Pujaris, mm-hmm. have them, you know, tell me the things that they've noticed over the years. And then but you start to all of these ideas from different palaces and different texts, they all start to coalesce and you can start to see those bigger pictures right. that are obscured by, you know, if you don't have the the time and you're going there as as a tourist. As I that's right. my first trip to Mysore was tourism. I didn't pick up on any of these. So Absolutely. you know it's uh, as a researcher we're often you know very lucky to meet a bunch of wise people who live in the area who can help us uh, Uh, focus in on a a lot of different important details. That's amazing. I have one more question for you on uh, Krishna Raja Vadeer. So um, how do you see uh, Momadi Vadeer negotiating both the Hindu cultural identity against the pressures of uh, colonialism? Can we say in a sense that he occupied two worlds or did he blend them in any way? He definitely blended. And I think that he was, you know, he was educated um, after he was put on the throne by the by the British, uh, who allowed him what you know they called traditional education, which would have been in the more Mysore style, but they also wanted him to have what they called a modern education, uh, which was in the British style. So he was familiar with you know forms of sovereignty 
and forms of kingship and culture more broadly from both sides. And you definitely see this being incorporated into the Mysore court and all the courtly productions in amazing ways. You see in the art, we now have like little, um, the Apsaras and Gandharvas become a lot more like Christian angels. Mm. Uh, you find in the genealogies, the um, genealogy of the Woodier kings, they change, especially the part prior to the, the Woodiers in Mysore, going back to Dwaraka, and then eventually all the way to Mahavishnu. If you count out the generations, that's something I point out in my book, is that the generations, the time period basically aligns with a genealogy that would have come from the, the Bible with mm -hmm. the same number of generations. So there's uh, concepts of, of time that are being incorporated and I, one thing that I found very interesting in this, uh, when he was going through his process of adoption, um, that was eventually he was able to, to get right before his death was that whenever they engage about what kingship is and how one kingdom or empire can take over another, they make these arguments very much from a, a British jurisprudence or political theory standpoint so he and of course he also has lawyers that were trained and, and court members that were trained mm -hmm. uh, but i say all these things to to bring in that drawing upon two different worlds and in uh, brilliant ways they're repackaging them to make an argument for indian sovereignty uh, mm -hmm. which i find to be just an amazing theoretical approach by krishnaraja woodier the third and his court it's fascinating to listen to you because you seem to know so much more about the state that uh, someone like me was born in and has lived <laughs> in for, you know, 40 plus years of her life. It's, it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating read to, you know, delve into more of what you have written and, you know, understand a lot more from you. But one last question before we sign off. Uh, we know you're interested in religion, in Hinduism, in goddess worship and a few other things. What are you working on right now? Quite a few things, actually. I, I have another book that will be published in April of 2022. It's now with the publisher. And so they're going through and, and doing all the, the wonderful things that a publisher does to make a, a book look good at the on the end. Okay. Uh, but that book is focused on a Kannada folk song that I heard during my time in Mysore uh, called Betara Chamundi. Mm. And it tells the story of the goddess Chamundeshwari and her uh, romance with the lord of Nanjungudu, uh, Nanjungdeshwara. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I, I first came across this with uh, an actually a play called Chama Chelove mm. uh, that was performed in Mysore. And it was wonderful mix of uh, romance and humor and intrigue. And then mm. the more I paid attention, the more I heard these songs at different places. Uh, and so I, I worked with uh, folklorist uh, P.K. Rajasekara uh, okay. to use some of his recordings and his published book, uh, Betura Chamundi, to translate these songs into English and then dive more into the, the history of what's going on uh, in, in those songs. And so that's, that's one project that's completed. But I also am, am starting a, a process of making uh, documentaries about different aspects of, of Mysore and Indian culture. Uh, I have one that I posted on my YouTube channel that is that is pretty raw, uh, but uh -huh. shows the concept. And it's on uh, the, the festival of Dasara and the, the movements between Dasara up at Chamundeshwari on Chamundi Hill and down in the Royal Palace. And what's your YouTube channel called? 
Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, as you can tell, it's um, it's just it's a nascent project now. I think it's just Caleb Simmons' uh, Religions of India. For those of you who are listening in, I think that's something you might like to watch if you're into Mysore and history. And uh, before we head out, what's your favorite memory from Mysore? Oh, there's so many, but I will I will tell you the one that really was a a life changer. Well, there's two. So I, I have to I have to say both because as soon as I said one, the other one popped up in, <laughs> into my mind. The first one is actually how I start this book, and that is a meeting uh, that I had with the the late uh, Maharaja of Mysore, uh, Sri Kantadatta Narasimharaja Wadir. Yeah. And it was one of those times as a as a young researcher, um, as I was at the time that I that I met him back in actually just just right before his death in 2013. Okay. And I remember discussing with him my research and how generous he was to go through and read parts of my dissertation, some mm-hmm. articles that I had published and to give very meaningful feedback that okay. really shaped my entire career uh, because they're just the, the types of questions that he asked. So I, I'll always be grateful for, for that moment and the memories of those interactions. And then the second is actually from, from Chamundeshwari that connects the, the temple and the, the palace. It was on Vijaya uh, Dashami or, or Dasara. Mm-hmm. And I went up to the, the temple to be able to work with the priest and, and see how the, the image of Chamundeshri was the puja and how she was dressed for her commute down to the, the palace for the, the ride on the Jambu Sawari mm-hmm. at the during the the Dasara procession. Yeah. And as I was talking to the, the priest there, they encouraged me to actually join them for the, the ride down with Chamundeshwari from the, the the temple to the palace. And I was in the back of the, the lorry with them and I was filming for the documentary and we got down to the Vishnu temple right outside the palace uh-huh. and people were wanting prasad so bad from the goddess that eventually someone told me just to put away my camera and to pe- start passing out prasad. <laughs> um, and so I, I had a, a moment where I guess I was, um, obviously I'm not a pujari, but uh, an impromptu pujari uh, <laughs> handing out prasad to the, the thousands of people who wanted it so bad. And I, for that one, one moment at least, really felt, you know, as I was uh, extremely tied to, to that community up on uh, Chabundi Beta. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing such interesting details with us. And for those of you who are listening in and didn't catch the name of Dr. Simmons's book, it's called Devotional Sovereignty, Kingship and Religion in India. So if you're interested in Mysore and its history, it's something that you should read. Thank you, Dr. Simmons, for uh, spending time with us on this podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Archana. It's been great. Thank you so much.